Welcome to the first meeting of 2022 on January 13th. And uh, do we want to see who's here? Sherry Wells is here. Yep. Roger's here. And I think uh, Liz is here. I am. I, I heard her voice. The world destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> and I do not have a dystopian novel. <laughs> you don't have any world destroying novels? Oh, no, oh you're you. not starting off the year well. <laughs> <laughs> Marshall's here, too. Oh, Marshall. <laughs> okay. Well, um, well, do we draw lots or who, who wants to do anybody have a book they want to talk about first or like they're so eager and they just can't wait to tell us about it or like awful how awful it was or how great it was. <laughs> Sherry, you often have books that are awful, it seems like. Oh, Marshall, too. Marshall does, too. Yeah, I'll start. I do have I do seem to have more and more trouble finding things I like, but. This time I found the only one I want to mention that I didn't like, which was surprising, was um, Alien Archives by Robert Silverberg. And I really like Robert Silverberg, but all these short stories start with a big, long description of why he wrote it, how he wrote it, where it got published. And you can't skip it. And mm. it's, I don't want to know that. I'm sure oh. in the print version, there's a like space between that description and the actual story. Yeah, they could have marked it. They could have marked it or put it. He could have put it at the end. Yeah. So I got annoyed and I might go back to it, but I, mm. I don't know. But the one I did read that was better um, was Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke, which is probably oh. an older one because there's four of them. And this first one was only about six hours. I noticed the other ones are 15 to 20 hours. Yeah. And um, this was pretty basic. There's a large unidentified object approaching the sun. And this takes place in the future. So our guys are out in space and they want to go investigate it. And they get inside of it and it's gigantuan. And there's all these different what look like cities and they name them New York and Moscow and different things and try to explore them. They start, they do eventually find some life like these spiderish kind of things. And um, it's rapidly approaching the sun. So there's this dilemma of, you know, how long can we stay in here? And it's pretty hard to explore to the gravity shifts. And there's all kinds of interesting, they, the science is pretty interesting with what they discover in there. And I don't want to go too far. And there are three more books, too. That did win an award, you know, Hugo for did Best it? Novel of 1973. I think it was 73. Yes, it was pretty old. Yeah, it was good. It was good. The personalities are starting to get developed. I don't have a sense of whether or not they'll be continued in the subsequent books. And the other book I want to cover real quickly is California by Eden Lepucky. Um <laughs> L E P U C H I. I don't, that's how mm. Jaws pronounces it. I assume it's mm -hmm. maybe. Pucci might yeah, be, might be Italian. Like Italian. Yeah. And it's, I'm, I'm taking Liz's place because this is dystopian. Mm. And it's about some people in California that are living out in the wilderness. And you get the sense that there's no longer United States and the cities are gated and these people choose to live in the country. But she gets pregnant and she wants to be around more people. They have some friends out there, but their friends get killed. 
and she discovers her long-lost brother is still alive in one of these cities, which ends up being more like a cult than a city, and they start realizing there's no children there either, and so will she be allowed to have this baby and that kind of stuff, and it it's okay. I, I didn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. So I'll go ahead and spoil the ending. They do find a place in a gated community that does accept children at the end. And mm. they, so, but it, it's, I don't think it was really that good. It was just okay. So those are my books for this. All right. Well, I will say, and I was going to put this on the DB review list, but I'm not sure if I can reply to messages on there. I've often had trouble with that, as you may have remembered, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, nobody remember. ever found out why. <laughs> Only uh, in certain instances. But the yes. moderators didn't seem to be able to figure out why, because somebody reviewed the whole series. Yes. And I did I not like the sequels, because ah. the reason why, and partly there's some tawdry stuff in the sequels. There's a lot of interpersonal drama and stuff that I thought was gratuitous and um but the main reason i didn't like it is because the whole point of the first book in my opinion was that humanity is not the center of the universe the the the, the raman ship the only reason it was in our solar system at all is because the sun was a convenient refueling stop exactly yeah. and the stri- but but then of course the whole rest of the series abrogates that entire point of course, oh. now humanity is at the center of these advanced aliens universe, and now it's all about uh, studying humanity and, you know, and all. And it just abrogated the entire point in the first book for money. I don't know what other reason there would have been. But, and Gentry Lee, I don't know anything else that he's ever written besides those books. And I just did not like them for me. I wasn't prepared to like them, and I didn't like them. Oh, I wish you um, would have responded because I think that response might have gotten through. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, oh. but I, 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 but I, but anyway, I liked the original book a lot. It was just a story about exploration. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of interpersonal drama. There wasn't a lot. Right. I don't know why authors nowadays, and even back then, you know, in the sequels, mm-hmm. they can't tell a story without a lot of interpersonal. It's like it's not a real story if there's not some drama between the crew or between the, you know, the the people who are running the ship and the people who are you know, a back home on earth or some kind of interpersonal, you know, you can't just have a story about exploration and finding out something cool and, you know, or speculating on why these people came here. It's Mm got to be more than that. Anyway, uh, I'm done ranting about that. Well, I think too, (laughs) I know what you mean, but I do like it when they do character development because I'm, I usually like stories with strong and they did do enough of that in this book that you felt like you knew the main guy. And yeah. his personality a little bit. I don't necessarily, like you said, I don't need constant affairs and infighting and all that. But I do like to feel like I know the characters. Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, people did like them, I guess. A lot of people like the idea that humanity is at the center of the universe. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so I guess they were, <laughs> they felt comfortable with that. But anyway, I, um, but, but read them if you like. There's some, cool description there are some aliens in there that are kind of interesting and yeah i know the raman ships are you know there's some descriptions of those later on and Mm -hmm. those are kind of interesting but but overall i didn't like them very much but anyway oh well hey um liz you haven't been here for a long time i think i will i will try to get you to go next if you will (laughs) sure Okay, I read Saturn Run um, by, is it John Stan- John Sanford and Katane, C-T-E-I-N. 
Um, mm. Have you heard? Has, now, Sherry had read it. Has anybody else read that? John Sanford. That rings a bell. Um, mm, Saturn Run. The, okay, the name well, doesn't, but the the name the author does, but the name doesn't. Yeah, John um, Sanford is normally a mystery writer, I believe, and this was just a foray into science fiction. Oh. Hmm. Well, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, it's set in uh, twenty sixty six, and um, there they there's a little bit of uh, you know they talk about the. Uh, global warming and how it's changing, but not much. There's not a lot of stuff in the beginning. Um, but anyway, the whole thing is um, uh, a, a um, intern, I guess, on um, a, a, a observatory uh, satellite um, in Earth discovers, he, he accidentally or kind of inadvertently discovers some anomaly around Saturn. It's like a, a, a ship approaching Saturn um, and it's decelerating. So um, he gets this information to our government and right away they decide, oh, if, if somebody's out there that's got that kind of technology, we want to get there and we want to get that technology um, to get to Saturn before, before China does. Cause right now they're still locked in a, a race to get to Mars, you know, and explore Mars. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they go on basically a fast track effort to convert, um, uh, a space, uh, a space station into a starship so that they can make use that to get to Saturn. And they, they, you know, go through all these calculations, they amass this crew. And the thing I like about the book is the, the crew is, of course, you've got your hard scientists, but you've also got, you know, your journalist and your, your, you know, photographer. Um, so it's a, it's a nice mix of people. It's, there's a lot of humorous interaction going on. It's not all this hard driving science, although there's lots of that for the people who want that hard science. Um, so anyway, they, they get to, you know, with, you know, some effort, they figure out how they can get to Saturn before the Chinese do, because it's shortly after um, the United States discovers what's going on in, in around Saturn, the Chinese do too. So they kind of divert their mission away from Mars to head to Saturn too. Mm. So now it's a race to see who gets there first. And they get there just about the same time, although the Nixon is what they end up naming the, the starship. The Nixon <laughs> gets there first and um, discovers that basically there's this uh, artificial intelligence machine, if you will, like a jukebox kind of thing there um, that, disp that has eight, eight canisters of data uh, from this alien technology and there's only eight, it, so you could, the United States could have two and somebody else could come along and have two, but the United States, of course, takes all eight, okay? Mm. They want it all. So China does a, they don't slow down fast enough. They, they do a, um, some kind of maneuver uh, to get into the, the atmosphere um, and their ship is damaged, so... The decision is made by the captain of the Nixon that they will take the, you know, the survivors of the, the Chinese ship aboard because they're human and that's the right thing to do. And well, then they discover that basically it was a sabotage that China had kind of orchestrated this and they, they planned to take over the Nixon and get the technology because they're making the demands that 
they should distribute the the technology through the the major powers that be on earth that the united states shouldn't get it all which kind of seems fair you know (laughs) but anyway so they do get back to earth um uh they discover i mean on their way on their trip back to earth they all come down with this like virus kind of thing that that um looks like measles so the, the word gets out that the nixon is a diseased ship so there's a lot of drama about what are we going to do, um, and so they convince the people on Earth, well, we can we can cure the people on board, but we're going to have to destroy the ship uh, and all the technology. So they do that, and um, they get back, and, and basically they decide to end up and distribute the um, the information, the alien technology to be discovered among all of the major powers, so that it's more, you know, that it's not just in one hand. Um, so this would be it'd be all and all of, but it, but it was a good book and, and I liked it. There was all a cat right. on board. There was you know a what? The crew was a cat. A there cat. Was a, oh the yeah. Cat the cat didn't survive the trip, you know. But he had a great time because he was an old cat on Earth and he was arthritic. So when he got in space, he was having a great time, just jumping all over the place and having well, a great time in zero. And I will take this opportunity to mention that if you have Bookshare, there, there, uh, Lissy did a proofread a book uh, that I uh, I think it's called Cats in Space. It's like a four hundred and some page book of, of short stories and novelettes and about oh. cats in space. Oh. Yeah, lots of the best authors are in it. Oh, wow! So it might be worth checking out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me say something about John's for <laughs> John Sanford wrote a series of mysteries that I call the Prey Books. Just think of the word prey with a different adjective in front of it every time. And uh, those were the names of his books. This book was, well, he decided to try something different. He wrote a science fiction instead of the usual mysteries that he ordinarily would write. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of some other guy then, I think, because there was another guy that wrote some mysteries. I think they were for younger people, and there was a, a series of them, but it wasn't Sanford. It'll come to mind after I've left, of course. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, well, who wants to go next? Anybody? Marshall, are you here? I haven't heard your voice. Maybe he's not. Wait a minute. Does anybody have their participant list open? Maybe he's having technical difficulties. Let me me check. Let me open the Zoom. Marshall's muted. Oh, Marshall's muted. Oh, okay. Well, um, maybe he's having trouble unmuting himself. I think Ann had that problem a couple Mm. years ago. Well, um, Roger, we'll see if we'll check back with Marshall. Okay. If he can come, if he wants to come in, he can speak up and then we'll know he's here and then he can go next. Okay, I may as well go then. Yeah. Uh, this time I bring you a classic, and it's not just a classic science fiction story. I think the literary elites might call it a classic too, but since. Um, the literary elites will not admit that science fiction has any literary value. They wouldn't 
consider it science fiction. And as a matter of fact, that is a little questionable. It is The War and the Air by H.G. Wells. Oh, that is a classic. I found this on Bard. And the reason it's questionable as to whether it's science fiction or not is because supposedly science fiction was founded in 1926 when Hugo Gerensbach started the first science fiction magazine. But before 1926, we did have people like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and such. But those works are usually considered science fiction retrospectively. At the time they were published, they were called scientific romances. But that was a bit different from a genre. In the genre, the way we consider the word now, literary genre, got started with the... um, pulp magazines and literary genre was then and always has been just a marketing tool for the publishers. It is a way they categorized their fiction so that they could determine who they were marketing it to. And um, science fiction came in kind of late as genre fiction. In any case, The War in the Air was published in 1908. It was published as a magazine serial starting in January of 1908. And that means it was all written in 1907. And it is one of H.G. Wells' more obscure works. And I think the reason it was so obscure was because almost immediately after its publication, it became outdated. So it's well to look at what was going on in the world in 1907 when it was being written. The Wright brothers did their Kitty Hawk thing in 1903. So that means this was being written just about four years after that. And it was not just the early days of aviation. It was um, in aviation's infancy. And in 1907, The airplane had been invented, but the stabilizer had not been invented. And that meant every time somebody flew flew an airplane, the likely outcome was going to be that they would crash. And in fact, this book even mentions that at about the time of uh, writing, the longest flight that had ever been accomplished was about... um, 12 miles, and even then, when the pilot got back in the plane to fly back to his starting place, well, he crashed it. Just the slightest little breeze that came along would crash a plane. So that was the state of aviation when H.G. Wells was writing this, although he speculates about future aviation. Some other things to consider... Well, just in the very near future, in the next few years, there was going to be aerial combat in World War One. You know, the Red Baron and all that kind of stuff. But um, at the time Wells was writing this, there could not be aerial combat because you couldn't get a plane to stay in the air long enough. Um, but also... The world situation, since World War II was, or rather World War I was looming, um, 
you've heard about uh, it got started with the assassination of Duke, whatever his name was in Sarajevo, but actually that wouldn't have started the war if there hadn't been some pretty, uh, if they, there hadn't been tensions in the first place. So there were, there was kind of a cold war going on between Germany and what were going to be the allies. So Wells did kind of predict that there was going to be a war that was going to break out with Germany. And, but he had to have something, some way to make um, aviation more practical. So here's how Wells figures the first um, airplane that can actually fly without crashing was some guy invented it. I forget what they said his name was now, but he was able to stay in the air some, uh, I don't know, 12 hours or something like that, that he didn't necessarily get too far. He rode an aircraft that was shaped like a wasp, and it even sounded like a wasp when it was flying. And he would sit on the back of this mechanical wasp and go flying stately through the air. He sure wasn't going fast. It was maybe about as fast as fast walking or so on. So you could just see him buzzing along off the ground as he traveled from one place to another. Um, Obviously, he had figured out how to stabilize the flight. And immediately, people all over the world tried to imitate him. And all different kinds of flying machines started being invented. But they were uh, seemed to all be patterned after insect flight, apparently either insect flight or some kind of bird flight or something. Well, now, the political situation again, Wells saw that there was going to be conflict with Germany. And Germany at that time in 1907 was at the tip top of technological advancement with Zeppelins. As a matter of fact, Zeppelin was named after a German guy by the name of von Zeppelin. And they had the best Zeppelins in the world, and they continued to have the best Zeppelins that'd be most advanced with Zeppelin flight right up until the 1930s, when that was kind of a uh, stop was put of that, to that by the Hindenburg disaster. But this was written long before the Hindenburg disaster. And it happens that the Germans fly a Zeppelin across the Atlantic, right over New York City, and start bombing New York City. The Americans had absolutely no defense against it. They didn't have anti-aircraft um, fire. Now, I'm going to say that this strikes me as not all that credible, because you think about it, a Zeppelin is a pretty big target. And I would think even a rifle or a shotgun should be able to bring it down, although it might not bring it down explosively. It would uh, at least punch a hole in it and Mm -hmm. it would lose its hydrogen. And uh, by the way, these things were flying with hydrogen. So a spark would cause the thing to explode just like the Hindenburg would in the 1930s. 
But in any case, in the story, the Americans had no defense against being bombed by uh, Zeppelins. So the Germans pretty much devastated New York City and were uh, devastating the Americans and were winning the war. But then other people got involved in the war and it started spreading. And all of these various airplanes, which were patterned on insect flight, joined in. And you had Zeppelins fighting, uh, well, kind of like buzzing insects. <laughs> the Japanese got, even got involved, and it described one of the airplanes the Japanese had with hooks on it so they could hook themselves onto a Zeppelin and board the thing. And most of the story dealt with um, all these various flying machines fighting each other. Um, <clears throat> toward the end, though, a disease breaks out that they call the Purple Death, and it becomes a pandemic and starts uh, devastating civilization, so to speak. In fact, toward the end, there are these people. It's well into the future by then, and these people are breaking into houses that have been abandoned. Well, not really abandoned. The owners died in them many, many years before, and they would break into the houses and find skeletons there, but also various things that they could use in their attempt to survive. But Wells describes this air war as being as changing war to the point that civilization could not survive war now that they were able to conduct war from the air. And that destroyed civilization and if you ask me it sure did seem like the purple death was what actually destroyed civilization and that didn't seem to be connected with the air war mm. but in any case it was kind of a post-apocalyptic world toward the end where uh, communications had broken down and there were rumors that in the distance far distance cities and so on the air war was still continuing and all of that. But you, you think about it. 19, 1907 was when it was written, published in 1908. And almost immediately afterwards, they did invent the stabilizer. And then World War I broke out and there was actual aerial warfare, you know, the classic dogfight and all of that, you know. So this story was outdated really quick. And I think that's why it's one of the more obscure Wells' work. But um, by the way, as to whether it was science fiction or not, um, <clears throat> the publishers that are publishing it now, reprinting it, classify it as science fiction. And since um, genre literary genre always has been a, a publisher marketing tool, then I guess if they say it's science fiction, I guess it must be science fiction, but it's still kind of retrospectively science fiction. So there yeah, you certain, have it. Yeah. yeah, certain authors are grandfathered in, I mean, to the definition of science fiction. I mean, Jules Verne and uh, by and it, and it does count as science fiction, I think, no matter how quickly it's outdated. It was an attempt to foresee 
the future, not in a fantastic way, but in a, you know, in a way that could naturally proceed from the, he just got caught by, you know, the speed of events that he didn't, uh, but that's not a flaw. That doesn't make it not science fiction. I don't think and, yeah, you know, I that just agree. means that he got out, he got caught out too quickly by events, but he mm -hmm. was trying to look ahead in a natural way. For that time matter, he for wrote that matter, it. I've heard it said that Frankenstein was the first science fiction story. And yeah, retrospectively, that could be called science hmm. fiction. But was it really the first? Think about it. Was Gulliver's Travel science fiction? Maybe it was. Mm. I think of that as more mm. fantasy. I, I do, too. Uh, and uh, it, it spoiled me for Yahoo for life because I couldn't think of the name of Yahoo the corporation without thinking of the <laughs> yahoos and <laughs> and the way they've conducted themselves lends credence to the anyway uh, when it was being written they the author really didn't know what was in the far parts of the world and so on right like it was equivalent to speculating now about space aliens only in his day at even speculating about space aliens it wasn't done it was speculating about what kind of creatures might reside in far-flung parts of the world you know yeah so, so i mean it, it might count and it's an interesting uh, at least it's on the border if it isn't um marshall are you able i thought i heard your yeah i think voice. So. oh you sound good you sound well, good yeah i forgot there was another dialogue I had to click. Oh, yeah, the got it. Oh, was it that security dialogue? No, it was oh, letting okay. me know that the thing was being recorded. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have to acknowledge that you're being recorded. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I started into Oath of Fealty with Lair written by Larry Niven and Jerry Porn or Pornell. Yeah. Yeah, that got a, a review on uh, DB Review also. Nolan actually reviewed it. Yeah, well, I don't know. I got, I've got i gotten to the point where the, two, the kids get killed trying to break in. Well, let me explain. The story takes place in or near Los Angeles, and this group has built a, an arcology, and it's like, 15 stories high or 50 stories high and a mile on a side and everything in it is self-contained, but they, these kids break in as a prank and get killed. And so far I, I don't like it. I was hoping it would be more like the early puppeteer books, <clears throat> but I just, have not found these newer books by authors as good as the originals. I kind of wish Bard would go back and start re-recording some of the old books. Like I, I would really like to know the what the Man Kazin Wars were all about. Mm. But I, don't, I don't think any of those are on Bard, and I don't really like listening to Bookshare books. But I will do as soon as I get my Victor Reader stream back from. Oh, by the, there is an eight-hour novel in the new in the um, 
the space opera renaissance book that I'm reading by Donald Kingsbury that takes place at the Man-Kazin Wars. And it takes place from the point of view of Kazinti, at least so far as I've read. I haven't finished it. Um, but uh, that's the only novel that I know of that's um, the Man-Kazin Wars that's on Bard is in that anthology. Yeah, well, uh, there, I know that Bard is trying to keep current. And that's an impossible task. Um, well, yeah, and they aren't finishing um, series. They they still have not gotten the final book in the Star Carrier series by Ian Douglas, and that's been out for a couple of years now. Um, so they did the first eight. Uh, they did them in omnibus volumes. They did like books one to three, and then four to seven, or four to six, and then seven. You know, um, six to eight. I forget what the breakings were. I have them on my in my card, but I don't remember the, but they did all of them except the last one. And they're, I don't know what they're waiting for. Um, so they're they're They finally did Paul Anderson's the fleet of stars after, I don't know, 20 years. Um, I, I don't know what they're, they're not following up on things to some extent. Well, um, I don't, I don't know how to even affect what they do. I don't think there is any way to affect it. I mean, you can write to them, but I don't know if they actually even read it or if they read it. They, I don't know if they have any, you know, authority to act on it. That's why I like Bookshare, even though it is, you know, some people don't like listening to. It. I can, I can buy a book and scan it and get it into Bookshare, and then people can read it. I can't do that with NLS or Learning Ally or anybody else. Um, so, but, um, but Bard, as I don't think there's really anything that can be done. Well, unfortunately, unfortunate. Yeah. And they've got a lot of other constituencies to, um, to satisfy. I know yeah. they've got commercial books coming in, you know, by the truckloads now, it seems maybe if some of these books were commercially produced, the audio, you know, the audios of some of these yeah, well, books even, uh, even they'd the get them in the even the commercial books are not going back to the golden age no 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 they're not that's true you know there are a couple of books i remember one i don't remember who wrote it but he's one of the i think he was the first editor for analog uh oh, man, who was I, I don't remember the name before campbell you mean it was campbell Oh, it was, oh, it was John Campbell then. Yeah, he was yeah. first. Um, it was the mightiest machine, and it mm -hmm. it wasn't much science, but it was a, just a good novel to read. Yeah. And there are a lot of other books that got read, but, you know, I think the market for books is drying up. Thanks. Um, a friend of mine used to say, well, you could go into a store and there were, Places where you could buy books actually in a grocery store. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. No. But I don't know. True if, enough. I'm I'm having real trouble with this book. I may try to finish it just to say I did, but you know, I've kind of lost interest not only in science fiction, but mystery. I even went back mm -hmm. and reread at great pain the in almost the entire wheel of time series almost did you I not i haven't read the last one are you, oh, 
let me let me point something out. Um, I don't know that you can request a book be recorded by Audible, but I have noticed something. First of all, Audible is owned by Amazon, but when browsing Amazon, I don't necessarily know if they have this link on all of the book pages, but I have seen on the various book pages on Amazon, a link that labeled something like, um, I can't remember the wording, but something, would you like to see this book recorded or made into an audible book or something like that? And I've never clicked through to see what happens or what they say, but it sounds like, um, well, I don't think they could possibly record every book that somebody requested, but it sounds like they might have a means of requesting that a book be recorded by Audible. Well, they might. but I think Audible has the same problem that Bard and even printed books. Mm-hmm. You know, not every book that gets su- submitted for publishing gets printed. There are all kinds of layers to s- that get rid of books that someone thinks aren't probably aren't profitable. Yeah. Well, there are millions of books and only so many actors to read them, you know. I know. Bookshare has their um, publisher who's uh, published. I've read several of them. They brought, they uh, put up some of Olaf Stapleton's work. It's called the SF Gateway. And they talk about the... um, fact that a lot of these old digital books they can put them out uh now uh, very cheaply because they're um they're able to bring them back digitally instead of having to print them so in the ebook world if you have access to like kindle or something um you can apparently get now i think they've gotten a lot of them on bookshare i haven't looked at the whole list because i'm not sure how to search because it tells you about it in the um in the book itself it doesn't tell you about it in the title or in the synopsis or anything so i'm not sure how to search for them all on bookshare but um there are some efforts like the uh, sfgateway.com to bring back some of the older books that have gone out of print well, but um, it's books. never going to be perfect. I mean, it's never going to be. Some of those books are, are probably lost for good, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I think the ones that were lost for good are ones I really wanted to read. Like this mightiest machine has this guy. He's from Jupiter and he's dis, he's misshapen because of the weight of gravity of Jupiter. This was before we even were sure that Jupiter had a surface. He actually grew up on Jupiter. Um, But he's a genius and he invents this little spaceship and he's out testing it and it runs into an asteroid, which transports him to another area of our universe. And he finds these races. One is human. The other are devils and that's where the devil came from from this other species and they're fighting a war and he ends it 
you know, and it's, yeah, it's not good science and it's probably not the best writing, but it's enjoyable. But I'm having, and as I've said this before, I'm having trouble finding books I'm enjoying uh, mm. because I think authors have, have stopped writing books for enjoyment. They write it to make a point or, you know, satisfy some political fragment of the society. And I'm, I don't want that. I just want books I can enjoy. Um, yep. Anyway, but I'm working my way through this book. I will finish it. I'm grimly determined to finish it because <laughs> I think it will get better. Mm. Well, have you read the other Niven Pornell books? Lucifer's yeah. Hammer and... Oh, um, Lucifer's Hammer I've read. Yeah. Then there's the ones where he ties into the puppeteer universe. Oh, I didn't know Niven and Pornell did any of those. I just I thought those were Niven solo work. I don't think so. I think Pornell... Uh -huh. wrote did some oh. writing too oh okay i wasn't aware of that um but you know the the other thing is they've tried to make books long mm. and i think that's because they make money off the word counts <laughs> well well we, me, we could I'm, I'm a little i guess we could ask david weber about that well <laughs> I read some of his I read some of his other ones these I don't even remember the name of the series but they're all they all start out with phrases out of the Bible mm. it's place on a on a world called called oh I can't even remember the name of the world but mankind is being destroyed by a race of aliens so they create an arc world and send people there. And it's about everything that goes on there, but it's mostly mm. war. Yeah. Not very much science. Right. It goes through the progression of developing, of going from like catapult mm -hmm. driven galleys or catapult mm -hmm. galleys with catapults on them. I finished those off too, but it, there, the way he wrote the books is, and I may have talked about this before, the way he wrote them, they're very hard to track because he has mm -hmm. so many characters and they're all presented in little snippets. Mm -hmm. And the snippets move from book to book, so it's really hard to trace things. But I, that's about the only science fiction I've read mm -hmm. uh, is this Oath, Oath of Fealty. Okay. Maybe things will get better. Maybe. Uh, maybe. I hope so. I reread my one of my favorite books. Well, trilogy, but I'm not going to talk about all three. I reread the Golden Age trilogy by John C. Wright this month. Actually, partly last month. Um, but I'll just talk about the Golden Age, which is the first book. And it is just so fantastic. But I don't know how many people here would like it. Um, it's very exotic, um, a very far. It's, it's actually called a romance of the far future, but it means romance in the way that H.G. Wells, speaking of, and Olaf Stapleton referred to it. They don't, they're not talking about 
romance mm-hmm. in that sense. That's not um, a love story. <laughs> no, it's not a love story. No. But it's the basic plot is very simple. And somebody suggested, and I don't know which website I saw it on, because there's lots of websites out there, and that the plot was simple because the setting is so radical that it's just it's easier to not have a complicated plot and have a complicated setting all in the same book. And that may be true, but it's about a guy who, uh, see this, he agrees to lose part of his memory because he was working on a project that the, um, college of hortators. And I'll tell you about them in a minute said was, dangerous to the golden ecumen which is the society where they live in the golden ecumen occupies the entire solar system there there's all kinds of habitations you know and jupiter has been stellated ignited um there are people living out in neptune and and um and there are all kinds of different uh forms of people but um in this age, everything, the technology is so advanced, nanotech is just, is, is almost magical. But in this age, you can redact, you can change your mental structure, you can redact your memories, you can, you can, you know, things like when you look at things, they can automatically add things to your mind, and it will feel as though you always knew it. Um, and people join uh in you know the the person in the book faith and his name is he's the scion of a certain school that holds on to some of the earlier human traits they they have like a their their mansion looks like a victorian mansion or it appears to be see most of the things happen in this book happen in um simulation so to speak so because there are so many different forms of humanity that you have to have agreements on how you can talk to each other, because otherwise you wouldn't understand how the other person thinks. They've got their brains wired up in different ways. Um, there are different kinds of, you know, as I said, but um, the basic plot is that he agrees to have some of his memories redacted about something he was working on. And this college of hortators. Hort- I thought that he was making up these words, but I started looking them up just to c- curious to see if, if there was a definition for the word hortator, H-O-R-T-A-T-O-R. And it's actually Latin for encourager or exhorter. Huh. Um, hey. He has got, um, he's got other things like there are mass minds in this book, but you cannot be forced to join anything this is really a, the closest thing that humanity has ever come to a utopia. And I think it's the only way that a utopia could work because the bulk of, of uh, the intelligence is in sophotechs. The humanity is like at the real low end of intelligence and sophotechs enforce that you can do anything you want to yourself as one of the sophotechs, as his, his mansion sophotech tells uh, faith and at one point he has a sophotech that runs the manor house where he lives you are free to ruin your life or damage your life as you wish um no one is going to stop him but he cannot do anything to anyone else he cannot force anyone else to do anything but he can do whatever he wants to himself 
his wife actually, and you don't find this out right away because he doesn't remember it until later on when he recovers his memory. She did not want to go into exile with him, which is what he would have had to do if he hadn't redacted his memory. But because she didn't want to leave the uh, noumenal, as he calls it, the noumenal mentality, because they have immortality here. And this has been in other books, too, where you have a backup. So if anything bad happens to you, you get you, you constantly backed up and you you can get restored to a new body. Um, she was afraid to leave it. So what she did was she went into a dream world and forgot that she was actually she forgot that, you know, that there was a reality out there and she did it voluntarily. So when her husband, Phaethon, recovered his memories and tried to wake her up, the Sophotech who ran the manor house where she lived would not let him do it because she voluntarily committed herself to this. And the, the golden ecu, the, 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 the ideal is that you can do whatever you want to yourself, but you can't do anything. To, you can't force anyone else to do anything. Um, so, but it's just, I mean, the sense of wonder is just amazing. There's all kinds of exotic, you know, environments and, um, and people have sense filters because they're so, I mean, he describes what it was like early on in the book when he turned his sense filter off and there was advertisements all over the, mm. all over the sky that, that if, as soon as he looked at it, it tried to download stuff into his mind and there was raucous music playing because some people were practicing, you know, something or other in some weird tonal structure. And, but he filtered all that out and he can make the environment look pretty much like however you want. Um, so um, it's really exotic. And the prose is really, uh, I think it was Publishers Weekly or somebody called it florid or ornate and somebody else called it visionary epic style. It's not just plain old prose. It's written in this really cool style that is, I mean, it's just fantastic work, but it, but it takes work to get in. It's very challenging, as I said, because of the, the environment, but, what the, the first book is about how he, he discovers that his memory has been redacted because somebody tells him uh, obliquely about it. They can't tell him if they tell him too, uh, you know, clearly, then they can be exiled along with him because you can't be exiled officially legally. But the College of Hortators, as I said, they can issue these. Uh, recommendations that people shun somebody or that they can be ostracized, they can be exiled. And the, the Sophotex will not stop them, but most people abide by it. So he actually does uh, get his memory back because somebody has attacked him with a mind virus. And there's a lot of talk here, and it's really kind of interesting, though it can be a bit confusing as to whether his, some of his memories are false because, you know, if you can swap memories back and forth and stuff like that, and you can you can do all kinds of stuff to your mind. If somebody else does it to you without your knowing, is it really your memory or did they really do it? How do you check? There's a lot of stuff like that in there. Not a lot, but there's quite a bit near the end because he has to go on, not on trial, but he has to appear before the College of Hortators because he broke the ban and, and recovered his memories and he tries to tell them, you know, that he was attacked, but um, they they look at his memories, but they were edited in such a way that they couldn't tell. And so they still exile him. And 
the plot's kind of predictable, as I said. The other books, you know, in the second and third book, you know, he's going to get his, you know, he's going to get his memory back. What he was working on was a giant ship, um, a starship, and because he wants to explore other star systems. But the Golda Ecumen, the the the, the not the Sophotex, the Sophotex subtly encourage him, but they don't want to go out right and oppose the human, you know, the human consensus. Um, but you'll have to read it to find out the details. But anyway, um, he wants to build a starship and explore other star systems and colonize them. Um, but the College of Hortators and others and the peers, their peers, they have technological monopolies on certain things. Um, they have a lot of influence also. They don't want to rock the boat because they've got a good thing and they they don't want to reignite warfare. They think that if other colonies, they're going to diverge from humanities, you know, the society that is pretty close to utopia and they don't, so they don't want things to change either. So they, they like things exactly as they are. So there's a lot of pressure to keep things, you know, the way they are. So Phaethon, he's the hero. He's, you know, the hero. His father's name is Helion. You can see there's some Greek, the, the, you know, John C. Wright, you know, uses Greek names quite a bit in this. There's another, um, you know, I looked up a couple of other words. Um, there, as I said, there are, there are individuals, but they're also mass minds. You have to voluntarily agree to join one, though. You can't be forced. But one of them is called the Eleemosynary Composition. He calls them compositions. Eleemosynary is actually a real word. I didn't, I didn't know it until I looked it up, but it means of or relating to charity. Uh, so it's a charitable. They do a lot of charity work, but they do like people to they want to try to get people to join them, you know, of course. But um, and there's another one called the Bilipotent composition, which was abandoned. It was in an earlier era when there was warfare. Bilipotent means mighty in war. So he creates these words that aren't really made up exactly, but they're rare or they're combinations of words that you know, you might not have seen before, but it's just really imaginative. And he's, he's pretty libertarian. He, you know, he doesn't make any secret about, you know, his, his political views are pretty, pretty libertarian. Um, but this is the, I, I don't think that, that a utopia could work any other way with people being, you know, what they are. I think, I think it was Roger who mentioned a quote, this was years ago, and I remembered it, from I think it was Trotsky who said the, the goal was to minimize man's power over man, but maximize man's power over nature. And this book Bingo. comes as close as or was yeah. it the other way around, whatever it was. Trot Trotsky uh, was asked what your ultimate goal was, and he said it is to maximize man's power over nature and to minimize man's power over man. And that's kind of an open-ended goal. When do you reach the maximum or minimum, you know? Well, this book gets pretty close to it, I think. It, it sounds like a similar kind of idea because the Sophotex will not let anybody force their will onto any or compel anyone else. Mm -hmm. But they have their power over nature is pretty extreme. I mean, they have nanotech and there's all kinds of um, exotic life forms and so anyway, these are the, this trilogy is among my favorite books, and I decided to read them after ten reread them after about ten years, and I enjoyed myself a lot. So there you go. 
The Golden Age is the first book. The Phoenix Exultant is the second book. And The Golden Transcendence is the third book. And they're all read by J.P. Linton. Oh. Mm -hmm. Who's very good. I, I like him. I, some of his voices are a little odd, but I don't know, you know, what he could do about it. You know, how to distinguish the characters. So he did a good job with all of them. Um, and, but I just like the even the, just the writing is just elegant, eloquent. It's just um, I, I like just about everything about him. There are a couple of anachronisms here and there. He mentioned telephone at one point. I don't know how that slipped in. But that seemed <laughs> kind of a, a little bit odd early on in the first book. But um, it's just amazing. The, the imagination this guy has. I've read some other books of his I did for Bookshare. And, and it's just incredible the amount of imagination he can put into books. Few authors can even approach it. So anyway, there you go. If you want something really exotic, far out, that will do it for you. Wow. Nice variety. Everything from H.G. Wells to the yeah. extreme. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep, absolutely. So did I miss anyone? I don't think I missed anyone. There were no. five people and five people gave their books. I think we did. So I guess the um, I should say at this point that the next meeting of the Science Fiction uh, Club will be on Thursday, February the 10th, 2022. 